chapter 19. And after these things, I heard a great voice of much people in heaven, saying, Hallelujah, salvation and glory, King all-glorious, and honor and power unto the Lord our God. For true and righteous are His judgments, for He has judged the great whore which did corrupt the earth with her fornication, and has avenged the blood of His servants at her hand. And again they said, Hallelujah! And her smoke rose up forever and ever. And the twenty-four elders and the four beasts fell down and worshipped God that sat on the throne, saying, Amen! Hallelujah! And a voice came out of the throne, saying, Praise our God, all you His servants, and you that fear Him, both small and great. And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude, and as the voice of many waters, and as the voice of mighty thundering, saying, Hallelujah, for the Lord God omnipotent reigns. Let us be glad and rejoice, and give honor to Him, for the marriage of the Lamb is come, and His wife has made herself ready. And to her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white. For the fine linen is the righteousness of saints. And he said to me, Write, Blessed are they which are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true sayings of God. When we marry on this earth, we have various things in mind. People come from all kinds of backgrounds, all kinds of upbringings, all kinds of education levels, different forms and figures physically. But Christ wants a perfect bride. This day pictures becoming at one with Him, at one meant. So two become one. And he makes it very clear that kind begets kind. And in marriage, there has to be a perfect match. If we're to have a perfect marriage. So this day is a very, very important one for us to consider. And you say, well, why is a day of atonement... (laughs) When we don't eat, picturing the wedding, perhaps the wedding supper afterward of Christ and His bride, well, I don't think most brides eat much on their wedding day anyway. They're too busy trying to get the way they ought to be, so when they walk down that aisle, they look the best they can. So their minds are on other things. Well, our mind needs to be on other things today, other than just food and drink. He says we fast because the bridegroom is not with us. That's what he told his disciples. My disciples don't fast when I'm here. They fast when I'm gone. So he's gone, isn't he? He's gone. He's not here. 
Well, he may be here in spirit. I hope he is. I think he is. I believe he is. But he's on his throne in heaven. So we fast, waiting for the time of the marriage of the Lamb to his bride who is making herself ready to marry him. We know, I guess, by the very fact that we're willing to fast, that we're not ready. We have some work to do to be ready for the marriage. And fasting is a tool whereby we are humbled, we learn, we become contrite, less vanity, less ego, less pride when we're hungry, and therefore perhaps teachable. Now when two people do decide to get married, you see married people all the time downtown, wherever you go, married couples. Sometimes you look at a couple and you think, I see how they got together. That makes sense. And then sometimes you see a couple and say, I wonder how that happened. How did those two ever get together? She may be four inches taller than him. One may be skinny, the other one hefty. Uh, You know, one may be physically very attractive to the general public, and another might be unattractive to most. But they found an attractiveness of some kind in each other, did they not? Must have at some point, at some time, whatever it might have been. And we don't know how people get together. Not everybody has a jet airplane of their own that can go and look over the whole earth and find the perfect one. So they settle for what happens to be at work or at school or at AA or wherever they happen to meet people. And they get acquainted and first thing you know, they want to get married. So there may be all kinds of things that don't seem to fit. There may be things sometimes that seem to fit quite well. We hope they're physically matched, mentally matched, emotionally matched and above all, spiritually matched. But you know, even if they're almost perfectly matched, he's Mr. Perfect and she's Miss Right or whatever, there can still be problems in marriage on this earth. Let's go back and consider Adam and Eve for a few moments. They were hand-created by God, And I think that we all would assume that they were as physically and mentally and emotionally and spiritually matched as any two human beings ever have been. Because God created them from scratch and made them for each other. So I would think they were both, let's say, if we want to be sexist about it, uh, they were both tens, if you will. Everything right about them. First human beings made. They didn't have any genetic problems from the past. They didn't have any bad backgrounds. Everything fit and worked perfectly. I don't know what age they were. Uh, Well, they were age zero, and she a little bit younger, having been taken from the rib. But did he create them at 
age 20, 25, 30, 100? I don't know. We could only guess. Age of accountability in the Bible is 20. Uh, did God make them a little older in terms of their mental uh, maturity than that? Maybe 25, 30, 40 years of age? I don't know. Back then, they didn't uh, age very quickly. You could be nearly a thousand years old and still look pretty decent. Uh, you know, as this played out. So people did not age quickly. It doesn't really matter what age I suppose they were. But they were at the right age. That God figured was the best age to create them to be in their human development at that point. So, couldn't have been two more well-matched people. That should have been a perfect marriage, right? Should have worked out just right. Well, along comes a being named Satan, and it took him, what, a minute, two minutes, five minutes, to wreck the whole thing, absolutely destroy that marriage. I don't know whether it was only a few days old, or how long it was before God turned Satan loose, but it only took one little temptation to do something that God had said don't do, and suddenly their bliss, their marital dream was dashed. They suddenly began to blame each other for problems. They blamed God for problems. They distrusted, disrespected each other. They lost that loving feeling. <laughs> And began to argue and to fight and have all kinds of problems because they had disobeyed God. So, what is the problem here? It's humanness. It's humanness. Christ doesn't have that. He was human for a period of time, but He did not allow humanness to affect him in a wrong way. He never let it lead him to sin. Now, he learned from the things he suffered, and he was tempted in all points like as we are. There is nothing you have ever been tempted to think, say, or do that he did not have the same desire to do, and just as greatly as you ever had. His temptation had to be as great as any temptation that any human ever suffered in order for him to be the Savior of that human, whoever it was, who had the greatest temptation. Now, you may think yours are pretty great sometimes, but believe me, there's somebody somewhere in history who had greater temptations than you have. No clue who, but somebody has. So Christ had to have been tempted as much as, actually more than, anyone ever has. Or he could not be the Savior for that one who had the greatest temptations. Follow me? He had to overcome more. He had to be tested more. For instance... How long did 
Satan take with Adam and Eve? 30 seconds or a minute? I don't know. It didn't take very long. Now, when Christ faced Satan, it was a different matter. Took him to an exceeding high mountain where he could see all the kingdoms of the earth, probably Brian's head. You see, 3360 degrees all over the promised land. And he put him through a series of questions after he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, having to do with food, having to do with power, having to do with a lot of things that people are simply tempted on as human beings. And he did not give in on any one of them. Now, that was the greatest temptation ever made was Satan with Christ after that 40 days and 40 nights. Greater than anyone else has ever faced. Now there's the husband that we look up to, the king all-glorious that we wish to marry. How do we get from here to there? Humanness destroys lives in marriage. I want to quote or read one scripture to you. Let's go to Galatians 5. Despite what hopes and dreams you may have with this special one that you have found to marry, all the things that you plan to do together and the life that you plan for each other and the perfect children you're going to have someday... You come up against something not too long after you're married, like Adam and Eve did. Here's the problem. Galatians 5, verse 16. This I say then, walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusts against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary the one to the other. They're the opposite. The Spirit of God and human flesh are diametrically opposed to each other. They don't mix. They're like oil and water. So that you cannot do the things that you would. We quote... The human mind is deceitful and desperately wicked. Who can know it? God's mind is not deceitful. It is not wicked. It is full of love and compassion and kindness, gentleness, the fruit of the Spirit, which if you read on, you'll see here. So we have total opposites. How did those two get together? How could those two possibly get together, we say, when we look at some couples? They're so opposite. Nothing fits. The works of the flesh are manifest, which are these. Adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lawlessness, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, variance, emulation, wrath, strife, sedition, heresy, envying, murder, drunkenness, revelings, and anything else you want to name along that line. Such like things. That's what humanness is. Now, when you examine human beings around the world, 
you have a pretty comprehensive list right here of what their motivations, their feelings, their thoughts, their beings are. This is humanity. Diametrically opposed to the fruit of the Spirit, which is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Against those things there isn't any law. Those are meant to be. That's the way it's supposed to be. Now, those are the things you dreamed about before you got married. And what you experienced was verses 19 and 20, 21. Now, not entirely. I mean, marriages do have a certain amount of love and affection and, and so on in them. But what I'm talking about is the general human situation that marriages are dominated by humanness. And most marriages now come apart for these very reasons. Now, Christ's marriage is going to be forever and ever and evermore. It is not going to come apart because of humanness. There'll be no adultery, there'll be no fornication, there'll be no hurt feelings and all these things that humans go through. Because there will be perfection on, hear this, both sides. Both sides. Now here we are, candidates, to make ourselves ready for the wedding. And there is a problem. Houston or whoever. He's perfect, and we're far from it. So how do we fix this? What do we do? You know, when a prospective bride decides to have a wedding dress, she may go to a company that makes wedding dresses. She may go to a seamstress. She may need an excellent one. Because most generally, she will have some difficulties that she wants to minimize or maximize so that she looks her very, very best in that wedding dress. So when she goes, those who are commissioned to make that dress work, look her over. And maybe there's too much of her or not enough of her. Maybe her legs are too long and her body too short or her body too long and her legs too short. Maybe her, this or that is wrong. So they begin to think, well, we'll minimize this, we'll maximize that, we'll suck this in, we'll poke that up, we'll hide this, we'll show that. We're going to figure out some way to make this woman look great when she comes down the aisle. Right? Now, there are a few women who are the way that I guess most people would want them to look, so you don't have to do too much. But there's an awful lot of pushing and pulling and tugging and straightening and fixing involved most of the time. We won't talk about grooms. We're just talking about the bride here. The groom, the groom in this case is perfect. So it's the bride we're dealing with. Did I get off with that one? No, the, the bridegroom also has to, as a human, try to figure out how he's going to look good too. You know, his ears are just too big. What are you going to do about that? Can't put a tuxedo over him. <laughs> 
Whatever. Now here's the thing that I'm driving at, though. When you take that prospective bride, and you look at her, and you're going to say, how are we going to make the dress fit the bride? Now she can eat a little more, or she can eat a little less, and she can try. But when it gets right down to it, you're going to have to make the dress fit her. Okay? Now, when we consider Christ's bride, that won't work. It won't work. His bride is going to be dressed in the fine linen of righteousness. One size fits all. Perfect righteousness is the garment. Are you beginning to feel something coming on here? You can't make the dress fit the bride, as the Protestants try to do. In this case, you have to make the bride fit the dress. That is going to is going to require a great deal of work on the bride to make her fit righteousness. That is the dress. If there's too much of this and too little of that, it's got to be fixed. It's got to be changed. In the human realm, we try to make everything fit us. I did it my way, or whatever way we decide to do it. We don't want to change me to fit conditions. We want to make conditions fit us. That's why we get rid of this friend and get another one. That's why we get rid of this food and get the one we like. That's why we get rid of that car and get the one like the Joneses. We're dealing with humanness all the time. And we often do not look at things honestly. We view them through the prism of how we want them to look. And without a realistic picture of the way things really are, how are we going to get the picture right? So, altering the bride to fit the wedding garment requires honest introspection Deep consideration of who and what we are, and like making a sculpture of an elephant, we begin to chip away everything that doesn't look like an elephant. So that everything is chipped away that does not look like a righteous, a righteous bride of Christ. So it's not conditions or circumstances we work on, it's us. It's making us fit Him. Song of Solomon, I do not have time to go through in its entirety today, but I want to have us look at a couple of little things. It's just before Isaiah. This is, I believe a story of Christ and His bride and the ins and outs of what it takes to get them together 
in perfect harmony. But she starts out the Song of Songs, which is Solomon. Solomon wrote it. She says, Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is better than wine. I'd rather kiss you than drink wine. On the other hand, if I could drink a little wine and kiss you as well, that might be even better. No, I didn't say that. Because of the savior, uh, the savor of your good ointments, your name is as ointment poured forth. Therefore, do the virgins love you. You're my bridegroom, but all the women watch you. They're all jealous of you because you are so wonderful. Draw me, we will run after you. But notice down here, she looks at herself a little bit. She's extolling how great he is. And she says, I am black but comely, O you daughters of Jerusalem. The tents of Kedar are as the curtains of Solomon. They were sometimes made with dark uh, wool. Now, was she an Israelite who was black in skin color? No, it explains in verse 6. Look not upon me, because I am black, because the sun has looked upon me. So I'm heavily tanned, maybe even sunburned a little bit. My mother's children were angry with me. They made me the keeper of the vineyards, but my own vineyard have I not kept. So she said, they got mad at me and they sent me out and says, you go out and take care of the vineyard. And there I got lots of sun on me and I don't look as good as I want to look for my bridegroom. Now we have varying ideas of beauty. And sometimes women think they look better if they're tanned. Others think they look better if they're untanned. Nobody thinks they look better if they're burned. But she thought that her skin, naturally, would have been beautiful to him, but she was afraid, because she had sun brown, that he might not find her as appealing as if she was her natural color, whether she was light-skinned or whatever. So she's looking at herself and saying... I'm not what I ought to be. That's the main point I wanted to get out of this. I want to be more appealing to you. I want to be more what you want me to be. It's like the Pharisee and the publican. The Pharisees stood up and said, I know what you're looking for. You're looking for me. I am the finest. I am the most righteous. I am the handsomest. I am the richest. <laughs> I'm the greatest. My name is Muhammad Ali. You want me. And over here was a publican who stood and said, I drop my head on my chest. I cannot even look up. Why would you want me? Why would there be any interest? Which one did Christ say he looked to? the one with the contrite heart, the humility and the meekness of spirit, as he says in Isaiah as well. And he even said, I don't call the mighty and the noble and the Pharisee of the world. I call the weak and the base. And now we know why we were called to be candidates to be a bride of Christ. Because... We are the weak and the base, essentially. 
a cross-section of society and not the top of the cross-section, if you will. He called those who don't fit the dress. Purely and simply. You and I don't fit the dress. Alterations have to be made, not in the dress, but in us. Now, he is confident enough in his power, in his ability, in his perception, in his capacities to change us and to make us a perfect fit for him. You do not share that much faith and trust and capacity or in his capacity and his ability. You doubt that he can do that with you, if you have the right attitude. If you think you need to be altered and changed in order to be a perfect fit for the perfect bridegroom, then you realize that there is a lot that needs to be done, and you question at times his ability to accomplish that. Now, you've tried to be different than what you are, right? In some form or fashion. You've tried to heal your ignorance with education. (coughs) You've tried to heal your looks with a diet. You might have even tried plastic surgery out in this world. You might have done a lot of things to try to make things different. And you had trouble getting it done. (coughs) Excuse me. Because of humanness. Because of the way humans are. Of what we read in Galatians 6. So we fall short all the time of what we would like to be. We have a conversation with someone. And often we walk away saying, I wonder if I offended. I wonder if that's the right thing. Should I have said that? Oh, I shouldn't have said that. We're not happy with the way we are all the way, all the time, are we? In fact, a lot of the time. Some of us have a severe issue with it, with terrible feelings of inferiority. Others tend to act superior and try to appear to be above others because they know how inferior they are, so they put on an act of self-righteousness and a superior air. And there are those who, I guess, really truly think they are superior. Megalomaniacs and various other names for them. But to be completely honest and straightforward, we all realize that we have lacks. So, what do we do? Now, in the Song of Songs, it also goes over, they they talk back and forth about how wonderful each is, right? And then she has a dream in chapter 5, and he's coming for her, and She's all tuckied in bed and everything's fine. Teddy bear by side, pillow under head. Uh, She's comfortable. She's doing fine. And this is not really a dream. It's more of a nightmare because he comes and he knocks and she doesn't respond. And she realizes, I'm not responding properly. And then he goes away. And when you're madly in love, 
You want to be with each other all the time, don't you? And when he has to go or she has to go, you feel terrible. So she gets up and runs through the streets looking for him. Now there's an analogy here between Christ who is the perfect bridegroom and she who has fears and dreams of inadequacy and has trouble living up to what she knows she should be. And knowing how weak we are affects our capacity to overcome the things that we would like to change. Now we got a little too proud, a little too thinking we were okay and ready for our wedding dress. And Christ spewed us out of his mouth. And he says, you're not ready for this dress. You're not getting it. Go repent. Change. Overcome. Grow. Make yourself fit the dress and then I'll talk to you. That's what Revelation 3 is all about. So, Pentecost pictures the engagement of the Lamb and the Bride. And then comes the long, hot summer, or the dog days of summer, we might refer to, to them as. Waiting for the Feast of Trumpets, which is when he comes to claim his bride. And she, in the meantime, is trying to make herself ready. He's coming, he's coming. I'm not ready yet. Can you fix this? Can you do that? What can I do? I'm not ready yet. It's almost time. So we begin to panic, perhaps, if we care enough, if we're zealous enough. We want to be ready if we're zealous enough. And we recognize clearly what we lack. Now, remember how it was when you were dating, especially when you were young and might have had two or three or four or five different boyfriends or girlfriends through high school, college, whatever, until you finally settled on one. But how you wanted to be together all the time. You wanted to talk to each other all the time. We didn't have cell phones back then, so you couldn't talk and text all the time. When you had to be apart, you longed for each other. You thought about the things you would say to each other. The sweet things, the clever things, the funny things, the smart things. All the various things that you would try to impress the other with when you got together finally at the end of the work day or whatever. Because your minds were totally absorbed with one another, right? Now what does humanness and Satanism do to that? Satan has made such a vast and wide array of things to do that distract us from our bridegroom-to-be. We can get strung out on so many different things that we lose our focus, and that's what the church did, and all of us is, which formed the church so that we did not spend the time with him that a prospective bride and groom want to spend together. Sometimes we found it difficult to pray or to study because 
the human mind and spirit is absolutely contrary to God's by nature. Now, if we truly are so full of zeal and excitement about marrying the King all-glorious of the universe, then we should be thinking of Him a great deal of the time, right? Our minds would be there. If we were in the right attitude, we would want to pray every time we got a chance because we want to talk to our bridegroom. There's the man that I love. There's the one that I want to be with the rest of my life. There's the one I want to be the father of my children. There's the one I want to spend Song of Songs with for all eternity. I want to talk to him. I want to tell him about my day. I want to tell him about my difficulties. I want to ask for his help with this difficulty. I want to spend time with him. Remember how you used to hang on every word that the guy you were going to marry said about the future and the kind of house he was going to build you and the kind of car you were going to drive and the kind of house you were going to have and how many really good-looking, smart kids you were going to have? Remember how you listened to his dreams? All this crap, I mean, all these things he was telling you that he was going to do for you. Didn't turn out exactly that way. That's why I almost slipped that word in. But you hung on those words then, didn't you? It was later on that you said, remember what you told me? (laughs) But you hung on every word he said. Now, where is every word that Christ uttered? Right here in this book. Right here. If you're hanging on His every word, His every promise, then you should be excited about reading this book. Why should you have to pummel yourself and focus yourself in order to read the Bible? This is His every promise. This is His every word. Every love story. How many times in here does He tell you He loves you? you'd think we'd just sop it up. We'd want to read the Bible all the time because those are the words of the one who made all these promises and the one who is going to fulfill every one of them just like he said he would. And there won't be any of this, but you said, at all. He will perform it perfectly. None of us have ever done that. And none of us as humans ever will because of humanness. We are opposite of Christ. And we see people like that and say, how did that ever happen? And we have the angels in heaven right now who look at Christ and say, King all-glorious, hallelujah, And they look down here and they'll say, Huh? How could this be? They look at men made for a little while lower 
than the angels. Lower in every way. In character. In looks. Every way we are inferior to the angels. And they can compare very easily because they can see us and they can see Him. And this is a mystery. Not just to us. The mystery of God in 1 Corinthians 15 is a mystery to the angels too. They just can't see how this could be. They also see the other third of the angels who are with Satan who are far lower than any creature including humans on the earth or in the universe. And they want nothing to do with them And they want something to do with us because they know God loves us and they know He has big plans for us, but they can't quite grasp how this can ever be made to be a perfect fit. The Scripture backs that up there in Hebrews. They just can't quite see it. You've said that about couples, haven't you? I just can't quite see it. Well, maybe they can't either. (laughs) But they're married. This has got to be fixed, brethren. We've got to make the girl fit the dress. Let's go back to the book of Revelation. I think you're beginning to realize that this is a character issue, right? Christ has perfect character. He is... He is those attributes of God there in Galatians 6. That is His nature, His Spirit. And we're just the opposite. So when He says he, she is preparing herself and making herself ready, that means she's working on herself. She's working on her character. She is in the process of saying, Father, help me not to walk in the flesh, but to walk in the Spirit, as Paul put it. Help me think more spiritually. Fill me with your spirit. Fill me with your thoughts. Help me to think like you think. And in fact, he tells us to bring every thought into the captivity of Christ. To think with nothing but love, joy, peace, and those good qualities. Not with lust, vanity, jealousy, greed, envy and those things that come to us by nature. We are to look on the good, not the bad side, because that's the side God looks on. And He's cheering us on. He's trying to help us become what we ought to be. But He says, if you have not, it's because you ask not. He says, if we will ask according to His will, He will do it. So, A, we have to ask for holy, righteous character. We have to realize and be honest and brutal with ourselves and know that we have need of that and that we have great lacks. And we excuse ourselves. And we embellish ourselves. And we become self-righteous. And we do all kinds of things to make ourselves appear to be something We are not. You can put lipstick on a pig, but you still got a pig. You got to change the pig. 
It's unclean. We have to be clean if we're to bear the vessels of the eternal. So sometimes we just got to oink it through and admit we're the pig. And then do what is necessary to change it. Aren't we all unclean animals by nature? I don't have cloven hooves and I don't chew the cud. I'm not fit to put in your dinner plate. I'm unclean. By nature and by creation. Humans were not made to be food. Some people have that mixed up, but we're not. So we are in the same condition. You know, that, that sounded awful when I said it, that you're the pig. But aren't we in the same condition as the pig and the lobster and the octopus? By nature. That's what God said. Deceitful, desperately wicked, unclean to the core. Fruit of the Spirit is uncleanness in every way. I mean, fruit of the flesh. So we are there where we have to go to God and say, I want to be like you. Help me bring my thoughts into captivity. Help me think like you. Help me act like you. Help me be like you. How did David pray in Psalm 51? Purge me. Wash me with hyssop. Take a scouring pad after me, if you will. Lava soap. Scourge me. Cleanse me. Purify me. For I have sinned against you. That's what we have to do. That's the way we have to approach God. Because we know we lack. And we don't hide that from ourselves. We're brutally honest with ourselves. And then we go to Him and say, Help me fix it. Now, David was a man after God's own heart, and those are essentially the words that he used. I'm unclean, I'm impure, I have sinned, I'm filthy. That's the truth. Help me, God, to fix it. And then I will use your words in the great congregation. So let's be like David. Let's not play with mirrors and smoke and our little dog and pony show and try to convince ourselves how good we are. Let's be honest. Let's just admit it. I mean, is it such a big deal to admit it? Really? Look at all humankind. Look at all that's going on on this earth. Look at what God says about us. Why not just fess up? This is what I am. Now let's go to work. I've got to be prepared to be the bride of Christ. King All-Glorious is coming on the day pictured by trumpets. And he's going to marry me on atonement. And I've got to be ready. And they can't make this dress fit me. I've got to make me fit that dress of righteousness. So with all my heart, I read his words. I hang on every one of them. With all my heart, I talk to Him every time I get a chance. Because He's my bridegroom-to-be. And I want to talk to Him. I want to tell Him everything that hurts, everything that helps. That's the way it needs to be. We've not achieved that yet. 
You don't pick this Bible up and read it every spare minute you get. You don't pray every spare second you get. That's what we are trying to be in our attitude toward Christ. But humanness still comes in there, and humanness still makes us procrastinate and put off. And our very way of thinking, which is opposed to God, makes us sometimes not want to face Him, and it even makes us not know what to say. There are times when I feel it's such a loss, I'll say, Father, I don't even know what to say. You're you and I'm me, and how do, how do I fix this great gulf? But you stay at it, and you work at it, and you begin to communicate with Him. But this day pictures being ready to put the dress on. This day pictures having it on and going to the wedding. This is a very important day. We were headed back to Revelation. Now we read 19 in verse uh, 7 where it says, They're singing hallelujah and glory to God, which I read right after that song. And it fit very, very well, thankfully. It wasn't planned that way, but it just fit. And how that we are to be clean and white and have the righteousness of saints and be invited to the wedding supper. All right, let's go on to chapter chapter 21. Same thing here, but let's go back up to verse 3. I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men. So we move forward here from getting the bride ready because he's coming soon to saying he's coming. He's here. He's with men. So it's moved forward. Feast of Trumpets is done now. We move forward from 1 Corinthians 15 and the Feast of Trumpets, the resurrection of the dead. And I was going to go there, but for sake of time I won't. But what's 1 Corinthians 15 about? about mortal becoming immortal, about that which is ungodly becoming godly, flesh becoming spirit, a change. Now, we can go through Hebrews 11, which I all thought of doing as well, and we can see the imperfections of all those who are listed there who are going to be in the kingdom of God. We see the good in them in Hebrews 11 mostly, But if you go back into other scriptures, you find mistakes and sins that they had. So we have a lot of people who are in the grave today who are going to be in the kingdom of God in the first resurrection. And a lot of them are listed in Hebrews 11. (coughs) They did not reach perfection prior to their death. So when do they become perfect? At the resurrection. That is when that which is in total contrast to God by nature. Now, we can work at changing our character by living in the Spirit and walking in the Spirit more, hopefully, than walking in the flesh and what we normally think and do by going to Him and receiving His Spirit and having Him help us 
and guide us and lead us. It is not an easy task, but we can make progress. He did not say in Revelation 2 and 3, Those who are perfect, I will grant to sit with me in my throne. He said those who overcome. That is a kinder, softer expression, if you will. He didn't say having overcome everything and achieved total perfection. It says to him that overcomes. And in his parables to the disciples, he gave different levels of, of some would roll one city, some five, some ten, based on what? How smart they were to start with? No, based on how much they had overcome. So overcoming is key to being in the kingdom, and it is also key to how high we might be in that kingdom. Overcoming is what he's looking for. He's saying, all right, here's what you were, weak and base. Here's what I want you to be. Now we're going to watch you. We're going to help you. We're going to work our salvation with you. And we're going to get you a lot closer to what you should have been all along. And when you die, or Christ returns, we're going to finish the job. That's when he turns imperfection into perfection. That's when he turns our carnal nature into spirit nature, and we no longer think or want to think the way we have thought. He finishes the job. None of us will achieve perfection. Don't even try. Forget it. Achieve overcoming toward perfection. If you make absolute perfection your goal, you're going to be disappointed. If you make overcoming your goal, you have a chance at encouragement. You have a chance at hope. You have a chance to actually accomplish something if your goal is overcoming. Not the ultimate goal is perfection, but we can see clearly in Scripture that it's not going to be achieved until the resurrection. When the nature is changed. Because your nature is going to drag you back as long as you're human. No getting around it. And you have to work at, with zeal and energy, overcoming. And doing the best you can to be like Him. And He will make up the difference when the change comes. But if we don't overcome, and we don't work at it, and we don't show that we want to be the bride, he's going to say, hey, you didn't even try to put on the wedding garment. Outer darkness, go away. This is for those who worked at and overcame and grew. And now I have perfected them. Now they will fit that dress perfectly because they've had a change in spirit a change from mortal to immortal. Now they fit. So in the meantime, you better struggle and wiggle to fit. And then if you haven't gotten it quite done when he gets here, he'll make it fit. He'll make it fit. Because he will work salvation in you. 
And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes, verse 4. And there shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. Verse 4 is a verse that you and I cannot comprehend on any level. After having lived humanly on this earth and gone through what we've gone through, you cannot even picture this. I mean, we can try, but we can't get it because we've been dealing with humanness all this time. We've had to deal with every one of these things. Then they're going to be gone because perfection and immortality will have banned them. It will banish them. They won't exist anymore. And he that sat upon the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. Well, verse 4 is going to be an entirely new experience for us. All new. And he said to me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. Now, when are we going to believe him? When are we going to believe that if we will work at and strive and zealously seek to overcome and change the way we think and do, that this is really going to happen. That we can believe Him. His promises are sure. All we have to do is our part, which is hard. But with His help. That's why we pray. That's why we study. Is to be with and be like our groom. And he said to me, it is done. This is going to happen. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give to him that is a thirst of the fountain of the water of life freely. Sometimes it comes hard to us, doesn't it? The fountain of the water of life, the words of God, and how he wants us to think and be. Those things are hard to achieve. Here he says it's done. It's there. He that overcomes. Oh, isn't that what we just said? Not he that is perfect. He that overcomes shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. Bride, son, it all comes together here. So he's promising us if we overcome. Now, I hope that gives you a little hope. If you've been striving for perfection, you're not going to achieve it. But if you strive to overcome it can be done. That is an achievable goal with the help of God. To change things in our character that need addressed. He that overcomes will be my son. But here's some that won't. The fearful, that's those who don't have trust and faith that he can work his salvation in us. I've heard people say, well, you're just going to have to take me as I am, Lord. That's an old Protestant song, in fact. Take me as I am. When hell freezes over, he's not going to take you as you am. He says, fix it. Change it. Overcome. Don't sit back in fear and say, well, I'll never be able to overcome. Yes, you can. With his help. And the unbelieving. You better believe this. 
You know, you're not going to achieve anything much in life at all unless you believe you can do it. You'll never have dinner tonight unless you think you can fix it. You just go hungry for the rest of your life, albeit short. If you're going to accomplish anything, you have to believe it can be done. I mean, fixing dinner is kind of simple for most of us. Challenge for me, but easier for a lot of you. But there are things that are more challenging than that. And if you don't come to believe it can be done, you can't do it. You really think that you can... What are your problems? I don't want to see hands here. You know what your problems are. Yeah, some of them. Some you haven't seen yet. But some of them you know. Don't you? Do you believe you can do it? Some things you've worked on maybe for 30, 40, 50, 60, 70 years. Haven't fixed it yet. Are you still unbelieving? I can't fix it. It can't be fixed. I guess I'll just have to give up and work on something else. Easier. No. Go for it. Go for it. Go to God. Get help. Believe it. That's what faith is. Belief and trust in God that things can be fixed, things can be made different, and you can come to fit the dress of righteousness. And find something and go to work on it. Maybe that thing that's been a challenge for 80 years is too big right at the moment. Find something that you believe, with God's help, you can fix. Maybe you do need to start with something smaller. Because you've got to believe it. Nobody ever went to the Olympics and won a gold medal because they didn't believe they could do it. Hadn't happened yet. They believed it enough that they worked seven, eight, ten hours a day. They ate the right things. They slept the right hours. They punished their bodies. They treated them brutally to achieve the level that they had to achieve to win that gold medal. Because others had just as much talent as they did. And some had more. But some had greater heart. Some had greater zeal. Some believed that they could do it. You have to believe in yourself to the extent that you believe God working in you can achieve. Whether you can on your own or not. So the fearful and the unbelieving, the abominable, the murderers and the whoremongers, the sorcerers, the idolaters, does that sound like the liars? Does that sound like Galatians 6? Those who did not overcome humanness shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. You want to live forever? You better make some wise choices like I'm going to overcome and I'm going to grow and I am going to be given eternal life because I overcame with God's help and come to have confidence and belief in that because you have a record of doing some overcoming Paul said I fought the fight I finished the course I know now that I have overcome and I've changed this and this and this 
And I know from my communication with Christ and God Almighty that I'm going to be in the kingdom of God. He came to the point he could say that and believe it. Because he had overcome. And he had grown. And he hadn't gotten bitter. And he hadn't quit. And all those things that human beings would do. So at the end of his life, he says, I know I'm going to make it. He was confident he was going to make it. But it took some work to come to that level of confidence, right? So he tells us right here, I'm going to make everything beautiful for you. I'm going to give you every promise a bridegroom could possibly make. No tears, no death, no sorrow, no miscarriages, no failures. Nothing will ever go wrong again if you overcome. If you don't, you're going to burn up. And there came to me one of the seven angels who had the seven vials full of the seven last plagues and talked with me saying, Come here, I will show you the bride, the Lamb's wife. Now we started this sermon in 19 with those in heaven singing, King all glorious, hallelujah, almighty King of all, didn't we? Now let's take a look at the bride's wife and see if old Lumpy fits the bride's dress by now. He carried me away in the Spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me that great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God. Here is a holy Jerusalem descending out of heaven from God having the glory of God. And her light was like to a stone most precious, even like a jasper stone, clear as crystal. Have you seen fine crystal with light shining through it? It glows. It scintillates. It's beautiful. He says, I'll show you the bride. And then he shows him someone coming who has the glory of God. She is God all glorious. Not the Father and the Son, but she has the same glory. Christ is going to marry a bride that is a perfect fit for him. A perfect match made in heaven Completely. Taken to heaven. Married on the throne. On the sea of glass before the throne of the Father. A perfect bride. One who is overcome and made perfect in the resurrection in the change of spirit. Having the glory of God. You remember, do you, you remember reading in Revelation 1 what Christ looked like? The voice of many waters and his hair white like wool and his eyes shining as flames of fire. It's where you're going to look. Just like him. Having his glory. What is an Olympic medal compared to that? There won't even be Olympics. Pretty quick now, if it ever happens again. 
and had a great wall, great and high and twelve gates. Twelve tribes of Israel describes this city. The building of the wall, verse 18, was jasper, and the city was pure gold, like clear glass. Gold so clear, so pure, you could almost look through it, translucent. The foundation of the wall of the city were garnished with all manner of precious stones, garnets, rubies, diamonds, you name it, sapphires, goes on and on and names a lot of them. We love beautiful gems and especially in beautiful light. This is 144,000. This is the bride of Christ. This is the city. The bride depicted as a city. And she is beautiful from top to bottom. Nothing out of place. Twelve gates were twelve pearls, and every several gate was of one pearl. And the street was pure gold as transparent glass. That's describing you. Now, does that sound like the Song of Songs? where Christ was describing His bride there and all the things on her that He liked so well, that was so perfect, that was so beautiful, and she returning that and saying how wonderful and how great He was. Read the Song of Songs. That's the way it's supposed to be. Except now we have a bridegroom who will keep every promise He ever made. We have a bride who will be pledged to and keep every promise she makes to Him. So far, I've made a lot of promises to God and I've failed over and over and over to live up to them. Haven't you? I want to, but I fall short because of humanness. But I've got to work. I've got to overcome. I've got to grow. I've got to change as much as I can so that He says, Well done, you good and faithful servant. Enter into my kingdom. And guess what? I'm going to transform you into spirit and you'll never have another bad thought ever, ever again because you will be queen all glorious.